the last time we were in the book of Daniel, we were looking at Daniel chapter 7, and we talked about some of the prophecies in Daniel chapter 7, and they were very interesting. So then I thought, well, the logical place to go next would be, of course, to Daniel chapter 8. And I read through Daniel chapter 8, and, and there's tons of wonderful and interesting stuff in Daniel chapter 8. But I thought, do you know what? If I'm going to spend time in Daniel chapter 8, this is going to feel more like a classroom than a church service. I could go through these details and those details and, uh, and how wonderful history lines up with the prophecies given in Daniel chapter 8. And we could talk about it for hours. And I would just be thrilled to do that because I find that so interesting uh, but as sure as peanuts, um, the rest of you may just well fall asleep. And if you didn't fall asleep, you'd probably wished you had. So we're not going to do that. The last time we were in the book of Daniel also was sometime in December of last year. Um, I tried to encourage you by looking at Daniel chapter 7 that God has a plan and that it will not be thwarted. God's plan will take place. I showed you that God makes promises to his people and that he always keeps his promises. So we looked at some of the promises that he made in Daniel 7, and then we looked at history to see that those promises were fulfilled to the letter. And then we looked at some other promises that God has not yet fulfilled. That's, there's coming a day in the future for those that have trusted Christ where there's no more tears, no more pain, nothing else goes wrong. No more sin, no more worry, no more tears, and we can just enjoy our Lord forever and ever and ever. And that's a promise God has made. And as sure as he has caused the promises in Daniel 7 to occur exactly like he said, these promises are going to happen as well. Because by his name, he has said so. We can look forward to that with absolute confidence. There is no question in my mind that God will keep his promise. And it seems like maybe the more pain that we're experiencing or whatever it is, the more we look forward to this ultimate promise that God has given to us. A place of such pure joy that all of the things that are happening here on earth will fade into memory. I very briefly want to look at Daniel chapter 8 because I need to do this in order to introduce our passage for today. So it's not going to be where we're spending our time, but very brief, briefly, I want to look at Daniel chapter 8. Chapter 8 begins two or three years after chapter 7. The vision it contains is like a magnifying glass on a small part of chapter 7. And we'll look at that more closely. In chapter 7, which is written in Aramaic, which was the language of the Gentiles, so everyone could understand it, so in chapter 7, written in Aramaic, 
Daniel is given a vision of a bear raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. And I talked to you specifically about who that was and what it meant. Then a leopard with four wings comes along. I talked to you about who that was, Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. The vision given in chapter 8 is another representation of these same two empires, but, and very, very importantly, Daniel switches the language from Aramaic to Hebrew. Who is he talking to now? The whole world? Absolutely not. He is talking to the Israeli people now. He's talking to the Jews. It's like Daniel is saying, it's no accident, by the way. It's not like Daniel made a mistake and just flipped languages, not at all. It's like he's saying, okay, guys, I've told you what's going to happen from now until the end with Gentile nations. But now I'm talking to you, Jews. We've dealt with the Gentile nations. Let's put this behind. Now what's going to happen to Israel? So he switches the language to Hebrew. I can't emphasize enough how important that is. We cannot understand the book of Daniel if we don't recognize how important that fact is. But he switches to Hebrew, and he has the same, or he has another representation of the same empires. The Medo-Persian Empire is now represented as a ram with two horns, one of the horns being bigger than the other. Remember the bear was raised up on one side, one side being bigger than the other? The ram has two horns, with one horn being bigger than the other. Interestingly enough, the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire at one time, the city's name, if we translate it, meant ram. And when you look at the decorations of the Medo-Persian Empire, they used a ram very often to signify, um, just like the Americans might use an eagle, um, the Medo-Persians used a ram. So I think that's interesting that we see this ram there. And, and the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great is represented as a goat with one big horn. What's also interesting is the capital of Macedonia, which was part of uh, the Greek um, nations, states, that Alexander conquered, was called the City of Goats. And the Aegean Sea is named after it. It's almost like calling it the Goat Sea. And um, so I want to very briefly, if you're in your Bibles in Daniel chapter 8... Um, I'm going to read uh, Daniel chapter 8, verses 3 through 8, and then we'll flip back to Daniel chapter 7. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward so that no animal could withstand him nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power, and I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. 
Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Keeping that um, narrative in your mind, turn back to Daniel chapter 7, and we'll read just verses 5 and 6. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So you can see the parallel between the horn being uh, broken and then four horns growing up and the, the leopard having four heads, representing the same thing. God is just telling the Israelites in a new and refreshed way what he had already revealed in Daniel chapter 7. And so very, very plainly, the goat, uh, the, the unicorn goat, if I may call him that, is the nation of Greece, and the horn is Alexander the Great. And suddenly the horn is broken off. Remember, Alexander died at a very young age, in his early 30s. And when he died, eventually his kingdom was split to his four generals. So you can see how there's four horns that arise out of these four generals. So um, we can see very closely why this parallels. I want to very briefly look at the horn in chapter 8, verse 9, because it's not to be confused with the little horn of the fourth kingdom in Daniel 7, verse 8. When we were reading Daniel 7, there was a horn that arose, and now we're reading Daniel 8, and there's another horn that arises. They're not the same. They're not the same. They're very different. The little horn in Daniel 7, verse 8, comes as an eleventh horn after ten preceding horns. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 9, it is not an independent fifth horn after the four previous ones, but it arises out of one of the four existing horns. So although there are parallels in the fact that they are both horns, they're not the same. This horn is explained, if you want to look, I'll let you take the time to look for yourself, in Daniel chapter 8, verse 23, to be a king of fierce countenance and is very well and very easily understood to be Antiochus Epiphanes, who was um, a Greek ruler in one of the kingdoms that was divided when Alexander the Great died. We'll talk a little bit about Antiochus Epiphanes IV, really. He wished to substitute Zeus worship for Jehovah worship um, universally in Jerusalem. He identified himself with Jupiter or Zeus. His, he, he tagged an end onto his name, so his name meant Antiochus God Manifest in flesh. That's what Epiphanes meant. He called himself God Manifest. So he was a very humble man. <laughs> he wrote it on the coins that he had stamped, the silver coins with his image, Theos Epiphanes, God Manifest in the flesh. So yeah, a very humble and nice man. Um, what he didn't know is that um, the people in his kingdom didn't call him Epiphanes, they called him Epimenes, which meant crazy man, madman. He was insane. So um, when we look at some of the writings, they didn't refer to him as Antiochus Epiphanes, they referred to him as Antiochus Epimenes, the crazy one. 
and he was. His aim was to make his own worship universal. And you can see um, how that was prophesied in chapter 8, verse 25. So, yeah, he was called a Pimenes, which meant maniac. He is often referred to, even in Jewish writings, as the Antichrist of the Old Testament. There's so many parallels between this man and the Antichrist to come that even the Jews referred to him as the Anti-Messiah of the Old Testament or of the Tanakh. He was an evil man. And hence the need for Daniel to have this vision of what was going to happen to the Jewish folks because um, this Antiochus Epiphanes was the, was the man that was going to come out of one of the horns that was going to be ruler over, over Judah, where the, where the Jews lived. And so God specifically wrote this prophecy to say, look, this guy's coming. He's coming. Here's some of the things he's going to do. He's a very evil man. I could talk about all of the parallels in chapter 8 and the life of this Antiochus. The scriptures line up with history so closely that, as I've mentioned before, that people that don't believe in supernatural or in prophecy, they say there's no way Daniel could have written this 200 years before Antiochus. It's plain and clear that he wrote it after Antiochus because that is who he's talking about. But of course, for those of us that believe in prophecy, that God can see what is going to happen, we have no trouble dating the book to the time of Daniel, just the way history uh, lines up with. Because if God wants to tell us what's going to happen, he, that's his prerogative. He can do that. And I believe he's done that in Daniel 8. But all that aside, I want to read a little bit in Daniel chapter 9, and then we'll pray and get started on the meat of the matter. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, 
all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice, And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much again that we can get back into this wonderful book of Daniel. Thank you for inspiring your servant Daniel to write these words. They have been such an encouragement to me as I've had a chance to just delve into them, even just at such a shallow level. But, but to see your word has been uplifting and encouraging. I pray that it would be uplifting and encouraging to your people that are here this morning. And, and if there are some here that are not um, yet committed to you, that don't believe that um, what you say is true and they're seeking I pray that your spirit would work in their hearts as well to draw them to a relationship with Christ, even through the truth that is found in the book of Daniel this morning. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel was reading a scroll of Jeremiah, it says, early in Daniel chapter 9. And I think I know the verses he came across, and I think we ought to look at them. He came across several, and we'll look at two, but he came across several sections that God opened his eyes to. Turn in your Bible to Jeremiah 29 and verse 10. This is what Daniel was reading, and all of a sudden his eyes were opened. Isn't it wonderful when God opens your eyes to his word? And something you've read a hundred times before suddenly becomes illuminated by his spirit. I think this might have been something like what happened to Daniel here. For thus says the Lord, 
after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place, that place being Jerusalem. And I think Daniel must have been reading that and said, what? We're in Babylon, and it's been almost 70 years. So he kept reading. But apparently he kept reading in reverse because he had the scroll round up the wrong way because he went to Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. That was just my mistake. I was trying to be funny. It didn't work. Nobody even laughed. Jeremiah 25 and verses 11 and 12. Speaking about Israel now. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. I think Daniel must have been very excited. Lord, it's been 69 and three-quarter years or something like that. And I've just read twice that we're going to be here for 70 years. And then you're going to take us back to Jerusalem? You're going to deliver us? How can, how can this be? I'm sure he was so excited. Uh, when you look at the love he had for his people Israel, he must have been thrilled. There seems to me when um, I see interviews with um, Israelis that get a chance to move from wherever it is that they are, and they get a chance to move back to Israel. They get to the land, even the atheist, I I heard an interview with, he was an atheist Israeli, and he got a chance to move from Eastern Europe back to Israel. And he said he got off the plane, and he could not resist with tears in his eyes to get down on his hands and knees and kiss the ground. An atheist. Do you think God has built into the hearts of his people a love for the land that he promised them? I believe so. And I think Daniel, in his heart, must have felt this this excitement. I get to go back home. I, I left when I was a young teenager, and now he's an old man, and he gets to go back home. What a joy it must have been for Daniel to see this prophecy just about to be fulfilled in his lifetime. God had preserved him to this point. Very, very exciting for Daniel. But that's not either what I want to look at this morning. What I want to look at is Daniel's prayer. I want us to briefly compare verse 4 in Daniel 9. So if you put your finger in chapter 9, verse 4, and then also flip over to Matthew chapter 6, because I think this is exciting. You know how simple minds get excited, right? I think this is exciting. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. And we're going to read them one right after the other. So Daniel chapter 9 verse 4 and then Matthew chapter 6 verse 9. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Over to Matthew 6, 9. Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. It's almost as if, if we didn't know who Jesus was, we do, so we don't have to guess, but it's almost as if Jesus took his lesson in prayer from Daniel. Of course not. Daniel was praying to the Lord himself. But do you see the parallels in these two scriptures? When when Daniel comes before the Lord, how does he start? Lord, I need this, and I need this, and I need this, and I need this, and I need this. No, he doesn't start that way. He starts by acknowledging who it is that God is. And when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he says, when you pray, you need to start by acknowledging to whom it is that you're praying. Start with worship. It seems to me, it seems to me that a heart of prayer, how many of you were in Sunday school? Yeah, um, it seems to me that a heart of prayer begins with recognizing and acknowledging whom you are addressing. We are talking, according to Daniel, to a God that is great and awesome. He keeps his promises and shows mercy to those that love him. He is holy, completely separated from all that is unclean. God will not respond to those that approach him in pride, focused only on themselves. When you begin to pray and it begins, God, I need this, I need this, I need this, I want this, I see this, this hurts me. Who are we really focused on when we pray like that? We may have said the word God, we may have said Father, but really, who are we focused on? It doesn't seem to me we're focused on God. If we want our heart to begin with an attitude of prayer, I think that just as Daniel did and just as Christ taught, we start with acknowledging who God is. We start with worship. Here's what C.H. Spurgeon says. Proud prayers may knock their heads on mercy's lintel, but they can never pass through the portal. You cannot expect anything of God unless you put yourself in the right place, that is, as a beggar at his footstool. Then he will hear you, and not until then. C.H. Spurzen had a gift with words. I can just see myself trying to walk through a doorway that's just slightly too short and I knock my head right on the lintel that goes across the top. And that's the picture he's saying, that's the way prayers work when you approach God in the attitude of prayer. You're going to knock your bean on that lintel that goes right across the top. You don't enter in that way. You had better bend lower. You had better bend lower. If our prayer life consists only of asking and begging and not worshiping, who are we really concentrating on? C.H. Spurzen goes on to say this, If I am a member of a Christian church and I pray for its prosperity, is that not right? Certainly. But if I desire its prosperity merely that I and others may be able to say, See our zeal for the Lord? See how God blesses us rather than others? That is is a wrong motive. 
The motive is this, oh, that God could be glorified, that Jesus might see the reward of his sufferings. Oh, that sinners might be saved so that God might have new tongues to praise him, new hearts to love him. Oh, that sin were put to an end, that the holiness, righteousness, mercy, and power of God might be magnified. I want to challenge you uh, very specifically. I came across this passage in Spurgeon to pray for this body of believers. Not that we would be sheep stealers, as my boss calls them. He says, it seems to me that churches in Vanderhoof grow and shrink, but it's always the same people moving from one to the other, the same sheep finding a different pasture to eat grass in. So I don't want us to grow as sheep stealers. I want us to grow in the way that C.H. Spurgeon says, that new hearts might come to praise Christ, that new tongues would come and sing the praises of God, that not, not so that we can say, look, look how good of a job we're doing. Aren't we doing a wonderful job? Has nothing to do with the job we're doing. But to say, do you know what, God? People need Jesus. People need Jesus. You know people that need Jesus. Can you get them here? Maybe they would hear, maybe they would hear the gospel or something that would stir their hearts. Everyone in here knows someone who needs Jesus. I do. Can we build our relationships with them, have them in our homes, and maybe see them here? I, th- I think that should be a challenge for those of us that are believers, to, play, to pray for this church with the correct motivation. And the correct motivation is people need the gospel. In the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, Jesus goes on to ask for the things he needs, physically and spiritually. Give us this day our daily bread. And we could mean that as maybe the food we need, but more importantly, the very words of God. The rest of the prayer pleads with God to deal with sin. Did you not see that when we read the prayer of Daniel? Over and over and over and over again, Daniel is aware of his sin and the sin of Israel. I think that when we are facing this God whom we've addressed, we become acutely aware of what we're really like. Daniel sure was. Jesus, when he modeled the prayer for his disciples, of course, Christ himself would not have to ask forgiveness. But when he said, you know what? When you pray, pray to God like this. Forgive us our sins as we forgive our debtors. And we see this over and over again. I think it reflects, firstly, an attitude of knowing who it is that we're praying to. And secondly, knowing who it is that the prayer is coming from. Do you recognize who God is? And once you've done that, do you recognize who you really are? I think once we have entered into that sort of understanding when we pray, now we are in a position of communion with God himself. We've recognized who he is and we've recognized who we are. I think Daniel's prayer is a beautiful picture of that. Listen to these words. 
that Daniel uses in verse 18. Just go ahead and have a look at verse 18. I'm not going to read the whole verse. I'm going to read the second half of the verse. But listen to these words and see how it reflects Daniel's heart. We do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Why have you come to God in prayer? Because you're so wonderful? Because you finally got it all together? Your life is straightened out? Why is it that you've come to God in prayer and asked him to keep his promises that he made in the past? Why have you done it? Because you're so wonderful? No, because God is merciful. That's why we can approach the throne of grace. And the final thing that I want to point out about this prayer Did you notice when we read the prayer in Daniel how often he refers back to the scriptures that he read and the promises God made? Pete said the exact same thing in Sunday school. We had better be immersed in the word so that when we pray, our prayers line up with what God has planned. That's exactly what Daniel did. Daniel said, God, you told Moses that if we sinned and abandoned you, you would punish us and look. It has come to pass. And God, you said that 70 years we'd have to be in captivity in Babylon and then you would deliver us. Deliver us, God, just like you said. If you want to pray effectively, I think you need to know the word of God. I think you need to approach God recognizing who he is in great humility so that you don't knock your head across that lintel. And I think that you need to recognize who you are. And these things will put you in a communion while you pray with God that will begin to change the world around you, starting with you. I'm going to end in with a poem, and then we'll pray and close. Prayer makes the darkest cloud withdraw. Prayer mounts the ladder Jacob saw. Gives exercise to faith and love brings every blessing from above. Restraining prayer, we cease to fight. Prayer makes the Christian armor bright. And Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Let's pray.